Well, last week, in the light of the resurrection, we learned how we should live, right? Now, this morning, Jesus is going to teach us how to minister. How many want to learn how to minister? Now, remember, you're the ministers. I'm not the minister. Do you know that? That's what the Bible teaches. So, Jesus wants me to teach you this morning how to minister. So, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. Beginning at verse 29, there's a companion passage. Mark records the same event. The context is the feeding of the 4,000. It has special meaning for us this morning. So read along with me in Matthew's account, beginning at verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Now remember, the, the there that he left was the district of Tyre where he had delivered that Canaanite woman's daughter of a demon. Do you recall that? Pastor Andrew shared that with us a couple of weeks ago. So he left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up into the hills and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the dumb, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The numbers of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went into the vicinity of Magadan. Matthew tells us that Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, where he'd healed that young girl. Mark's account tells us, gives us more detail where he went and his route that he took. Mark says he went through Sidon and came down to the Sea of Galilee. You would expect that he would go back into the region of Galilee in northern Israel. He doesn't do that. Rather, he goes into the Gentile district. It's called the Decapolis it's an amalgamation of 10 cities, 10 Gentile cities. And that's where he goes. And he's going to do two things while he's there. He's going to demonstrate his Messiahship. He wants to drive home the truth of who he is deeply into his disciples' hearts. But he's going to do it in a unique area. How did Jesus typically demonstrate his messiahship we've been reading through the gospels what is jesus noted for miracles miracles that only the messiah would do the difference here he's not only gonna, he's not only going to do miracles but he's going to do them in the midst of the gentiles now and this is going to be eye-opening for his disciples the second thing in a more direct way He's going to teach his disciples, and, and by extension, he's going to be teaching us that we are to minister to people in need, no matter who they are. Now remember, this is happening in the Gentile districts. Were the Gentiles a favorite people group to the Jews? Not hardly. Not hardly. The Jews considered the Gentiles to be dogs, even, Jesus even said that in that last section when Pastor Andrew taught us. 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs, right? Under the children's table. So the Jews believed that the Gentiles were, were enemies of God. They were completely lost. There was no hope for them. Prejudice ran deep in the Jewish heart for Gentile people. And nevertheless, Jesus had come to save only the Jews? No, he came to save all. The Jew first, then the Gentile. He came to save these Gentiles. And his disciples had to learn this truth. Because Jesus is going to be leaving pretty soon. After this sojourn in the district of the Decapolis, he is going to be going back down to Jerusalem and he's going to face the cross. After his death, burial, resurrection, when he sends back to heaven, his disciples have to carry on the ministry. It's imperative that they realize that he came not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And you see a number of occasions where that is spelled out in the book of Acts. So Jesus is going to show them, and he's going to show us, a step-by-step process. How are we are to minister how we're to minister to people in need, but more particular, people in need, no matter who they are. Now, it's easy to minister to people in need who are nice, people we like, people who are friendly to us. But what about people who are not? Does everybody have needs? All around us, all around us. Do we find ourselves sometimes avoiding people? Yeah, we find ourselves avoiding people. We of all people should not be avoiding others. Jesus received everyone, didn't he? Okay, so here we go. Step one. How many are excited to learn how to minister? Well, not every hand went up. Let me try it again. How many are excited to learn how to minister? Ah, that's better. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Step one. Go to where the people are. That's rocket science, isn't it? Go to where the... If you're going to minister, you've got to go where people are. Everybody has needs. Now, we're not exactly sure how long Jesus was in this area called the Decapolis. We do know uh, that the crowds are with him for three days. It's possible that he was in that area for up to six months. We have no record of Jesus ministering to others except that Canaanite woman's daughter. All the people who come and, and get healed and fed in that three-day span of time. Mark records a deaf and dumb man. So I suspect that the majority of that ministry that we have visibility of happened within that three-day span. But we believe that he was probably in the Decapolis area for about six months. What in the world was he doing in that area? Because we have no evidence, nothing else is, is, is revealed to us in the text about what he might be doing. I believe that he went into the Gentile area to prepare himself for the cross. Now remember, every place else he goes, whether it's in Galilee or down in Jerusalem and Judea, he's always dogged by his enemies. He has no peace. Here, he's going to get time away, prepare himself, and as well prepare his disciples for the time when he will be uh, crucified and ascended into heaven. So he's there for basically, I think, a period of uninterrupted and intensive training for his disciples, plus preparing himself. The cross really did lay immediately before him. So before leaving that Gentile territory for the last time, he wanted to reinforce in his disciples the great need to minister to all. The Gentiles would be included in the kingdom. This is something that Jesus had to reinforce again and again and again with his disciples. He was going away, and they were to minister to all, Jew and Gentile alike, all who were lost and all who were in need. 
So what's step number one? Go to where the people are. If you're going to minister, go to where the people are. Everybody has needs. Here's the second step. Make yourself available to those in need. Make yourself available to those. It's easy to isolate ourselves. It's easy to say, well, I don't want to be bothered. I'm too busy. Make yourself available. If you're going to be an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do you go where the people are, you make yourself available to those in need, and everybody's in need, right? Notice. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. He says, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the dumb, and many others, laid them at his feet. He healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Great crowds came to him. What does Jesus do? He makes himself available. He sits down. He sits down among the people. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. I'm sitting down. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened. He says in another place. He sits down in a Gentile area, right where the people were. He's approachable. He's approachable. He was willing for people to come with their needs. How approachable are we? Are we willing for people to come to us with their needs? He treated no one as too repulsive. He treated no one as too vulgar, vile, dirty, ugly, deformed. No one. Whoever would come. Aren't you glad that he doesn't reject us? Amen. See, the issue was, if they would only come to him, he would heal them. If they would only come to him, he would minister to them. Later on, we're going to read when he weeps over Jerusalem after his entrance into Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. He says, because you would not come. You would not come. And here are Gentiles who are coming. Jesus met the needs of everyone, without exception. Every kind of sickness, every kind of deformity, every kind of suffering, be it physical or be it spiritual, he met those needs. He is sufficient because he's God. He made us. He knows how we work. He knows how to restore us. He knows how our needs are best met. All that remains is we just come to him. We come to him. We come to him with empty hands of faith. We present our requests. We present our needs. There's a critical lesson here, I think. Jesus can conquer all the enemies of mankind. But one thing is needed. And the one thing that it's needed is that we must bring people to him. We must go after everyone, not just the acceptable, not just the appealing. Bring people to him. When I was studying and, and preparing this message last week, I had this picture in my mind. It, was just, it just took my breath away. And the picture was very simply that, that Revival broke out. Revival broke out in our midst here at Hope Chapel. Revival broke out and it spread throughout the beach cities, throughout the state of California. And God knows we need revival in California. It spread throughout the country. Revival. And it started because we, this congregation, realized it's our great joy and privilege to bring people to Jesus. Amen. Bring people to Jesus. They're all around us. Everybody with needs. If we would. If we would. 
The Bible tells us that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope to offer to people. We have hope. They have no hope elsewhere. No other philosophy, no other religion, no other therapist. Nobody can give them the hope that you and I can give people. We just simply say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let me bring you to Jesus. Think about that. And I had this picture of, of the fires of revival breaking out. People coming to Jesus and Jesus healing people, delivering people, saving people. And we just were on fire, just on fire. We all have an opportunity. God presents us with opportunities every day to bring people to who? Jesus. To Jesus. Absolutely. Many of you know that my wife is, we've been battling cancer for years, and uh, she, she undergoes chemotherapy uh, every Wednesday afternoon. And uh, she, uh, she's been having chemo for years now. And we're thankful for um, science. We're thankful for the grace of God. And we're thankful for the prayers of the saints. We thank you for many of you who continue to pray for us. But she's, she has a ministry in the, in the cancer chemo room. And she's always inviting people to come to church. She's always inviting people to come to Jesus. She's offering them hope. And she tells them, I'm still alive. I was supposed to have been dead four years ago. She says, but I'm still alive. Jesus is keeping me alive. The week before Easter, she was in getting chemo and there was another woman in there and she invited this woman to come to church and she says, it's Easter Sunday, come to church. And in fact, come, come to our Easter sunrise service, six o'clock in the morning. And the woman looked at her and said, mm, it's a little early. But she came. She came to the sunrise service. Ours is to invite people. Ours is simply to bring people to Jesus. No matter who they are. Everybody has needs, true? What's our first step? Go where people are. What's our second step? Yes, yes. Now notice the result. All these people coming to Jesus. Jesus is in meeting their needs. And what's the result? What the people do? These are Gentiles praising God. These are non-believers praising the God of Israel. Their own pagan gods couldn't help them. They're coming to Jesus and they're praising the God of Israel. Now listen to how the God of Israel describes himself. This is from the book of Exodus. When, when, when God passes in front of Moses, you, many of you know the passage. God describes his own character, his own nature. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. How many are glad for that? Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Literally, it's thousands of generations. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the God who they praise. Again, the pagan Gentile gods could not do what Jesus was doing. Those Gentiles could find no help from their gods. So they turned to the God of Israel as revealed in the compassion of Jesus. When people, people come, we have an opportunity to bring people. We reveal God through his compassion is evidence in our life. There's a difference between sympathy and compassion. You can sympathize with somebody, but compassion is a wholly different thing. Compassion causes you to act. It compels you to act. Sympathy doesn't necessarily do that. And so these people realized and recognized 
the compassion of God through the compassion of Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us. This is in the book of Acts, and, and he's, he's spent time with the Ephesian church, and he's and more particularly the Ephesian elders. And, and this, in the midst of his farewell to them, he says this, In everything I did, I showed you, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. It's going to require something of each of us. If we're going to help the weak, help those in need, it's going to require something of us. He says, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to receive than to give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? If we believed it, we would be doing that more and more and more. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think by and large for most people today, they think it's better to get, get to receive than to give. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he gives instruction. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I want the good life. I want the good life. If you want the good life, you want to lay up treasure in heaven, not here. The good life is for eternity. This life is short. It's a matter of priorities, isn't it? When people are brought to Jesus, three things happen. Three things happen. First, their needs are met. And they're met according to God's will. They're always met according to God's will. Secondly, they glorify God. And thirdly, there's more witness for God. The more, the more we bring people to Jesus... And Jesus meets their needs. Jesus ministers to them as only he can. There's more and more witness for God. Step three. Step three in learning to minister is having compassion for every need. Again, let me call your attention to our passage, verse 32 particularly. In verse 32... Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Jesus, his disciples, remember, looked on these people as outcasts. They wanted nothing to do with them. Gentiles were not God's people in the mind of those disciples. There was nothing attractive about them, nothing appealing about them in the eyes and the minds of those disciples. The disciples had no compassion for them. They were not concerned for them. And they had no thought of helping them. Notice, the disciples don't come and say, Jesus, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, but these people have been with us for three days. And they've run out of food. Jesus, you fed 5,000 people over here. Could you feed some? We have some, we have a few resources. We know you can multiply. Jesus, would you have compassion? Did the disciples do that? They could care less. They could care less. They're just, they're just about themselves going on their way. They don't care about the Gentiles. Jesus had to teach them. He had to teach them compassion. 
He'd already described the need for compassion earlier in the ninth chapter of Matthew's gospel. If you recall, Jesus, Matthew says, had compassion on the people. He looked out on them as sheep without a shepherd. And he told them to pray that God would send more workers into the harvest field. The need is great. The workers are few. Still the same case. So now he wanted to stir up their compassion for the loss and the outcast. They were to look at every need. They were to be concerned over these needs. And they were to be determined to help. Pay attention. Look around. As modern people, as postmodern people, that's really the, the culture we live in today. There's, there's no value system anymore. There's just barely a remnant of the Judeo-Christian ethic in our country. The Bible says in the end times, men's love will grow cold. They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of evil. We see it all around us. Being in the church is critically important, but we have to stave off the influence of the world. We're in the world every single day. We're exposed to the media every single day. The values of this world where there are no values. For years now, our, our schools have been, have been teaching values-free education. No, no right and wrong anymore. Social experimentation. This is the culture we live in. And out of that culture, there is no compassion. There is no genuine compassion. There's no genuine love for certain types of people. Do we have any concern for them? Do we have any thought for helping? It's easy to walk past people in need, isn't it? It's just real easy to do it. We're accustomed to doing it. But we of all people, all people, should be, be a pen, uh, paying attention to needs around us and be determined to help. Be determined to help. That's a challenge. That's costly. That's costly. Notice, please, in the text, who points out the need? Who points out the need? Jesus points it out. He points out the need to feed these people. He's always pointing out needs. You see a need. It's easy to ignore it. Easy to think, well, so-and-so will do it. Somebody else will take care of it. I'm too busy. I don't have the time. I'm disinterested. There's no compassion in my heart. Someone else will do it. No. If, if that need was pointed, Jesus is pointing that need out to you. He means for you to meet that need. Don't think somebody else is going to do it because if you don't do it, it probably won't get addressed. That's the reality of it. He points out the need. Wherever you go, he's going to point out needs. The people were so hungry. They were hungry, not just for food. They were hungry for God's word. They were hungry for God's provision. They stayed with Jesus for three days. Have you ever done this? Have you ever been so engrossed in something, something so important to you that you forgot to eat? You forgot your hang hunger. Yeah, all of us have experienced that. And this is what's going on with these crowds. They are so engrossed with him, so engrossed with his word, his grace, his mercy, they spend three days with Jesus, apparently without much food. No complaining. And how we complain if the preacher speaks more than 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> what a difference between those who truly hunger and thirst after righteousness and those who do not. How many of us esteem the word of God more highly than food? Think about that. These Gentiles hungered. They hungered for God's word. They hungered for his provision. Jesus didn't just heal them silently. I imagine he taught them. He always taught and the miracles supported what he said. They go three days without much food just to be with Jesus. Think about that. 
just to be with Jesus. In Psalm 42, we read this. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? How many of us are anxious to meet with him? Anxious, my soul thirsts for you. Did you read your Bible today? Nah, didn't have time. Oh, your soul is thirsting to be with him, huh? <laughs> Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. In Psalm 143, I spread out my hands to you. I spread out my hands to you. <coughs> a picture of total surrender. A picture of a child reaching up and, and saying, Papa, pick me up. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. I got nothing but you. You're my everything. Those are the kinds of sentiments that you and I ought to be expressing. Let me take down the fourth step. The fourth step in learning to minister is being willing to use whatever you have to meet the need at hand. Whatever you have. Look again with me at verses 33 and 34 in our text. The disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. We must be willing to meet the need with whatever we have without complaining, without objecting. We are great at the former, not so good at the latter. How many would admit to complaining and whining and moaning? You want me to do what? Notice, notice please, if you will, the, the complaints, objections of the disciples. First of all, the place was a wilderness, remote, beyond, beyond reach. Secondly, their resources were too little. Thirdly, the multitude was just too great to do much good. And lastly, they too, they were, they were poor. They were needy themselves. All reasonable objections. All reasonable excuses, humanly speaking. When resources are mentioned, many people object. Few are willing to give what they have, especially to those they don't like. Especially those who are undesirable. We must be willing to meet the need by taking inventory of what we have. You know, every so often... Someone will come out of the congregation and, and at the conclusion of the service or maybe before the service, they'll have met someone who has a need and they'll bring that person typically to me. They say, Pastor, this is Ken. He has a need. I say, really? He has a need. What are you going to do about it? Well, well, you're, you're the pastor. Yeah, but God gave him to you. <laughs> Don't pass him off to me. God gave him to you. You meet the need. Yeah, but you're the pastor. You get paid to do this. I said, no, 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 no. I get paid to teach you how to meet the need. <laughs> True stories. Happens all the time. Jesus' true followers must take inventory and get ready to give. What do I got? And Jesus is going to ask for what we have. Trust me. Trust me. 
But I just, I don't have much. I only have a, a, a few little loaves and a couple little fish. Wait a minute, don't leave God out of the equation. Can he make much out of a little? Yes, yes we have ample testimony to that. Earlier on in Galilee, he fed how many people? 5,000 men plus women and children. Again, with a few loaves and a few fish. He just kept multiplying them. Here we see he does it again, but now he does it in a Gentile area amongst non-believers. Wow. Listen to what Luke tells us. Luke records Jesus saying this. Luke chapter 9. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple. Now, let me ask you a question. It seems to me that people say, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to be saved from hell, but I don't necessarily want to follow Jesus. Now, can you separate those two, do you think? I don't think so. People do in their own mind. They just want to play it safe. Jesus does not come and offer us salvation so that we remain spectators. We are to be servants of the Most High God. He saves us to serve. He says it himself. I did not come to be served. I came rather to what? To serve and give my life a ransom for many. He expects those of us who say, I believe in Jesus, to follow him. We're servants. There's needs all around us. And if you and I don't address those needs, they will never, ever get met. What a shame. So you and I, God, does God entrust some resources to us? Whose resources are they again? They're God's resources. They're on loan to us. Are we going to be good stewards with them? Or are we just going to indulge ourselves? See, that's, this is where the rubber meets the road of being, being a Christian. Being a true believer. It's not about me and having my way and having an easy, comfortable life. It's about me serving God by serving other people. He says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you must first do what? Deny yourself. In other words, you're not number one anymore. You must deny yourself. If you're unwilling to do that, there's some reason to wonder if, in fact, you're a Christian. There's no difference between you now and before, except that you say you believe. But unless you're willing to deny yourself and pick up your cross once a month, <laughs> how often are we supposed to pick up our cross? Daily. I'm not ready to follow him unless I deny myself, pick up my cross. What's my cross? Any trial, any difficulty at any given moment that's killing me. Because that's what the cross does. It kills you. It kills you. But we don't carry that cross in our own strength, do we? Who provides the strength? How many have realized something you never thought, never thought you could possibly do, God enabled you actually to do it? You go, I could never do this. I'm not going to make it. I'm dying. This is killing me. I can't put one foot in front of another. And yet you have to. And you realize in the process, God, you're enabling me to do this. You're enabling me to put one foot in front of another. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. That's his, that's his economy. 
You got to be willing to lose your life. If you're going to have life eternal and life abundant, life to the full, you got to be willing to lose your life now. It's not about you. It's about him and his will. In Matthew chapter 19, we have the record of the rich young ruler. Remember him? The guy who comes to Jesus all puffed up thinking he's got it together and just going to just do a perfunctory thing with Jesus. and says, what good thing must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, well, it just gives him a, you know, takes him down through the commandments. Says, have you done this? Yeah, I've done all that stuff. He's real proud of himself. And Jesus says, oh, you know, I, there's one thing you lack. Just one. That's it, just one. One thing I lack. What's that? <laughs> now, remember, the context, the guy is trying to justify himself by his, what, good works. I'm a good person. So Jesus meets him on his own terms. He's okay. Good person. Here's the one thing you lack, just to complete it all. <sighs> Go sell everything you have. <laughs> Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. You see, you're trusting in your good works. That's where your security is. And you need to transfer your security needs on to me, Jesus is saying. And you're only going to do that if you get rid of all the stuff that makes your life secure. See, it comes down to, I really trust him. Do I really trust him? He's calling that rich young ruler to what? Deny himself. Pick up his cross. You have to picture this. Here he is. He's dressed in all of his finery. He's looking pretty sharp. He's got his Sunday go to meeting clothes on. And he's looking at Jesus and this ragtag group of disciples, man. They're, they're probably their clothes are tattered. Their sandals are worn. Their feet are dirty. They're smelly. He's going, hmm, 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 hmm. I'm going with me. Did he follow Jesus? Did he say to Jesus, hmm, that's it, that's what you tell me to do, that's what I have to do, that's what you have to do. Okay, Jesus, I'll do it. Oh! No, we're told that he what? Exited the scene. Why? Because he had too much money. Oh! May I suggest to you, being willing to give is not enough. Just simply be willing to give, one has to actually give. Regardless of what we say, there is no real willingness unless we actually do what? Give. I have a friend who used to tell me all the time, he says, you know, he says, Pastor Zach, he says, when, I, when my ship comes in, when I hit it big, I'm going to give. And finally, I just told him, I said, you know what? If you're not giving now, you're not going to give then. It'll be the same old, same old. Step number five in learning to minister. Ministering to the need at hand. Verses 35 and 36 in our text. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves and the fish. When he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Notice, if you will, before the needs were actually met, three things were done. The people were prepared. Sit down. And God was acknowledged. How was God acknowledged? Thanks. Thank you. Whenever we go out to eat, it's always fun. Whenever we go out to eat, you know, there's always a food server, waitress or waiter. They come, take your order. We always try to make it a point to, to tell that server, you know, we're, we're Christians and, and, and we thank you for your service and, and we're, we're going to give thanks for the service. We're going to give thanks for this food. Is there anything we can pray about for you? It just takes a moment. 
But you have to be what? You have to be consciously aware, intentional. I've had people, I've had waitresses fall down in tears. I've heard stories of, of these women and some men who were undergoing terrific trials. They could not say thank you enough. It just takes a moment. You minister to the need at hand. And the needs here were not met in any haphazard way. The needs were identified. The people were arranged and organized to receive the provision from Jesus. But something else was also needed. The people had to be obedient in following the Lord's instructions before their needs were met. Sit down. Sit down. Pay attention. Meet those needs. And the sixth and last step, if you will, in learning to minister is witnessing the Lord's power and provision. Witnessing the Lord's power and provision. This is kind of like the cherry on the top of the Sunday. Verses 37 through 39. They all ate and were what? Satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. There were probably upwards of ten to 15,000 people. 4,000 men plus women and children. The basketfuls, by the way, it's interesting, the Greek word for baskets in this passage talked about a basket large enough to carry a person. The baskets referred to in the previous account where the 5,000 were fed were small baskets, kind of like our backpacks or purses. Isn't that amazing? Remember when Paul was let down the wall in a basket? That was one of those big baskets. Was there abundant food provided? So much so that they had to go through it with big baskets and collect all the remnants. You see, when those in need are brought to Jesus... When those in need are brought to Jesus, he meets their needs and his provision satisfies. His provision satisfies. And in fact, his provision is abundant. I came that they should have life and have it meagerly. <laughs> no, we have life meagerly now. He's come to give us life to the full, abundantly. Come to Jesus and get some life, man. Oh, I have life. No, you have a meager life. <coughs> Paul writes this to the Corinthians. I love this verse. One of my favorite verses. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you what? Having all that you need. One more time. Having all that you need. need, you will abound in every good work. I lack nothing. Amen. I lack nothing. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we read this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Wow. Immeasurably more. The question is, do we believe this? Or do we just pay lip service? Church, we live how? Hopefully. Because this stuff is true. There is a God in heaven who loves us. With a love that we can't possibly fathom. He just says, what? come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And when you come to him, really, you realize that love and you realize that grace. You realize his provision in your life. And you are so impressed and so changed that you turn to others and say, come see. 
come with, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And there is a great reward in bringing those in need to Jesus. A great reward. We get to witness Jesus' power. We get to witness his provision in action. The more people we bring, the more of his power and provision we get to see. You imagine your head's on a swivel going, whoa, did you see that? What did you see that? <laughs> and the more we see of his power, the more we see of his provision, the more our own faith is weakened. Oh, whoops. I did it again. No, the more we see what he does, we're, we're just going, we're, we're, our minds are blown. We're, our faith is strengthened. We go, wow, wow, wow. And that acts as an incitement for us to do what? To go grab some more people. Hey, come here. Come to Jesus. And I submit to you, bringing those in need to Jesus is one of the most effective ways of growing spiritually. Read your Bible, yes. Pray, yes. Hang out with other Christians, yes. But bring those in need to Jesus and watch what he does. You want to grow spiritually? Amen. God, thank you. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, that it's not that complicated. It's simply being serious about being a Christian. It's understanding what a Christian really is all about. We're no longer of this world. The old things have passed away. New things have come. We're part of your family now. And you've given us a command to go and make disciples, to teach them all you've commanded us and to baptize them in your name. Father, we ask you by your spirit to renew in us the joy of your salvation. And Lord, that we may be faithful stewards and faithful servants of what you've entrusted to us. May we learn to minister truly according to your will. Keep your heads bowed for just another moment.